Hello and welcome to this week's Rennick Centre podcast. My name's Trudy Smith. This week we've got an old friend of the Rennick Centre podcast with us, Tim Byatt. Uh, Tim's going to be talking about something a little bit different this week and I'm really excited about this topic. But for those who haven't heard from me before, Tim, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, um, I work at RADBC in remote services. Before that, I was at Alice Battery School. Um, I've been at RADBC for over 10 years and I work with kids with hearing loss across different ages from school age to preschool age. Um, I'm currently doing my PhD part-time at the University of Newcastle. My supervisors are Dr. Jill Duncan and Dr. Kerry Dalligan. Thanks, Tim. And that's what we're going to be talking about today is your PhD topic. And it's an area that I'm particularly fascinated in. So I'm looking forward to exploring this more with you. And it's, it's around the area of social capital. So can you please describe what it is and, and how we measure it? Yeah, so social capital, um, the, the key is in terms of the capital. Um, it is a resource. It is something which can be utilised. Um, you can look at it two ways. Um, I'm using two theorists to um, define it. First of all, through Putnam. Um, Putnam uh, wrote a, a very famous book called Bowling Alone, um, and it talks about bonding and bridging social capital. And I'm gonna be using that framework for the first part of my research, which will be through a survey and then analyzing the results of that survey through quantitative methods. Um, bonding social capital and, and bridging. So with bonding, we're looking at um, social capital that's nurturing, um, it builds your identity. You often receive this through your family, through close friends, through your um, group that you most associate with, whether that be through religion or some other um, cultural um, link. Bridging social capital is a little bit different. What we're looking at here is more connection. So might not be nurturing, but it gives you access to other opportunities. So this might be through sporting groups. It could also be through churches, through um, friends of friends, um, example on LinkedIn you might have people there who you don't know very well but are connections and um, it, the difference between bridging and bonding is that bridging is also giving you access to people who are different from you whereas bonding social capital typically gives you access to people with similar beliefs and um, other factors to you whereas bridging can give you that diversity and Putnam states that you really want uh, a bit of a mix between those two. Uh, you don't want too much bonding because that can create exclusivity and um, prevent opportunities. And you don't want too much bridging over bonding because that can be a bit superficial as well. Sure. But why is it so important, Tim? Um, I think it's really important because if we look at the context of where deaf education is today, it's come an awful long way in the last 20 years and um, that's um, undisputable, indisputable. What do, what do you mean by how far it's come? What, what, what measures yep. are you talking about? So what I'd be talking about there would be language, literacy. The student um, outcomes. Uh, absolutely. Um, educational outcomes, speech outcomes. 
um, when we look at the technology with cochlear implants, with hearing aids, early intervention, early detection, all those things have come um, a long way in developed nations, not across the world, but certainly in developed nations have come a long way. I think the research bears out that there are still difficulties in other areas which are more nuanced in terms of um, social connections, um, peer relationships are often problematic. And I think a term which I keep coming back to is a term by, I think it's Vernon, um, called social deafness. And what this uh, illustrates is that students and particularly adolescents with hearing loss have restricted that opportunities to, um, to group work, to overhearing, um, and they're not always included and valued in their peer network in the same way that typically hear, hearing adolescents might be. Sure. So what is it that you're hoping from your research? So what are the aims or your research questions? What are you really hoping to investigate? Yeah, well, first of all, we want to measure social capital. Um, it's been measured extensively across other populations, um, adults with disability, um, um, in, in general education, but not specifically very much in amongst adolescents who have hearing loss. So we want to first of all measure it. So we would infer that it would be lower because of research done in other populations and some um, emerging research in deaf education. But first of all, we do need to measure and actually establish that it is low. I mean, it may not be. Um, but I think the thing with social capital, it's not an end in itself. I mean, measuring social capital would not be sufficient. We need to really um, look for associations between social capital and other outcomes, so more functional outcomes. So we're also measuring other things such as um, uh, social communication outcomes. We're looking at identity. We're looking at hearing device used. We are looking at um, well-being outcomes and also um, sense of connection to the school and really looking whether these things are associated with higher or lower social capital because having high reserves of social capital is a good thing, but all the theorists would agree that all social capital is not necessarily beneficial. In other words, it's not always a payoff. It's not like having a hundred dollars. You can choose how you spend that hundred dollars, but it is a form of capital, but it's a more slippery form of capital in which sometimes it's not worth very much and sometimes it is. And that's why we're measuring social capital against other outcomes. Sure. So are they the main factors that you're going to be measuring? Yes, certainly. Most of the um, survey will measure social capital, but we're also measuring um, social connectedness, well-being, and um, there's also an emphasis on social communication pragmatics. Sure. So what's the rationale behind the two research um, stages? You've, you've talked about a survey and, yeah. and then the second stage. So what's the rationale between having two separate research stages? I think the first stage will establish where we're actually up to with social capital. Um, the aim is to have around 100 adolescents with hearing loss complete the survey. And then we'll have a broad idea of where social capital is situated and any predictor, 
variables. For example, social capital might be associated with higher language. That would be logical. And there's some research to indicate that already. Um, and then that stage one um, survey quantitative research would be used to um, recruit a further 12 kids and their parents and they would come from um, the first stage and the idea would be the stage one provides the, the broad strokes and indications and associations but the stage two would be a qualitative stage where I would interview 12 adolescents with hearing loss and their parents and really find out a bit more nuance about um, where they're up to, what their social capital looks like, um, what uh, benefits their social capital, what takes away from it, um, and really exploring, for example, what we're really hoping to have is uh, four families who have high reserves of social capital, four with, um, within one standard deviation, and um, three or four perhaps below that one standard deviation and really comparing what their everyday experience is like. And I think something else that's running through my research is that we really want to get the perspective of the adolescents themselves. So we really want their experience in their own words. Sure. So why is this research so significant to you? Um, I, th I think professionally, I I've kind of had a great interest in, in pragmatic language over a period of time. And I think there are associations between um, pragmatic language and social capital. Again, that's not necessarily proven at this point in time, but there's something that I'll explore in this research, hopefully. Um, and, and it also speaks to the fact that, yes, outcomes are often improving for many of the kids we work with and the families we work with in terms of um, their language, their academic performance, their reading level, um, access to technology. But sometimes, and, and quite often, unfortunately, there are other social aspects that are maybe anecdotally not developing as quickly as, for example, your syntax and your vocabulary and, and those kind of things, which can be, and, and speech intelligibility is another measure that's also come a long way. So there's been a, a lot to um, praise in recent years about, but I think there's also some more nuanced areas um, such as peer relationships and understanding of non-literal language, which can make um, relationships problematic. And really that's what it comes down to. The reason we're working with the families and, and with the kids with hearing loss is predominantly because we want really concrete functional outcomes for them. And that will hopefully lead to um, economic outcomes, there's, there's, there's no getting around that as well, in terms of jobs that they enjoy and uh, a secure future. Yeah. I imagine that you bring a fairly personal perspective to some of this as well, Tim? Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, I have a hearing loss myself in, in sort of the moderate to moderately severe range. I've worn hearing aids since I was four years of age. Um, so yes, I, I also need to be careful that I don't bring too much of that bias into my research and, and to be forthright in declaring that and putting that to one side. But I, I think 
I do have a bit of lived experience, again, in a different era. You know, when I was uh, in school, we're talking in the 80s and 90s, so that was a long time ago, and things are different now. So we need to be careful not to um, muddy the waters with that. Sure, but it is very much that, that personal perspective that you bring is a way to um, support the students that you're going to be recruiting for this study in terms of, because you have that shared lived experience, it is more, more supportive, I imagine, for them if they're working with you, they're gonna be more comfortable talking to you because of that sense of, of shared experience? Yeah, I think so, Trudy. I mean, it, it varies from child to child. I, th I think certainly for the families, um, I, I sense that they are happy to work with someone who has that lived experience, but at the same token, I wouldn't say I'm any better than someone who doesn't have that lived experience. It just gives me another arrow in my quiver, I suppose. And um, sometimes that's utilised, sometimes it's not, but it, it um, is useful in some ways. Yeah, I think it's sometimes it's, it's useful to, rather than, you know, having somebody who's with, with typical hearing investigating people with hearing loss, it's nice to have deaf researchers in the in the field as well. And I think that's really one of the power strengths that you bring to the study. Sure, thanks, so teenagers can be really hard to recruit regardless of whether they have a hearing loss or not. Um, mm -hmm. How are you hoping to recruit adolescents for this study? Certainly hoping to recruit some kids from RDBC and other organizations. Um, we are currently going through the ethics process. So um, Again, I, I don't want to put the cart before the horse, but we are hoping to start research and recruitment uh, next year, semester one next year is the aim. And um, so I'm really hopeful that we can get those numbers. Um, there will be a couple of iPad prizes offered for those people who do complete the survey. So we're hoping that will encourage a few people. And certainly if you are in an organisation and uh, that is interested in this research, um, please get in contact with me. I'd be more than happy to speak to you and love to have you on board. Sure. So if people are considering nominating students for this study, Tim, who's actually eligible? So what, what's, what are the students that you're actually looking for to recruit? Certainly in terms of nomination, we're not directly recruiting the students themselves, but we are going through organisations. So I, I need to be a bit careful there. We're not directly recruiting the students, but certainly if you are part of an organisation that would be interested in being on board and um, helping with recruitment. Um, but really, there's, there's not really... The only criteria really is in terms that they need to be at high school and they need to have some form of diagnosed hearing loss. That, that, that is really the only criteria. Okay. And I, I assume um, modality, language modality doesn't have an influence? Not at all. Not at all. One of the survey questions certainly would be what would be your main form of communication? We'll be looking at the two groups here and comparing. But um, no, that I'm not... Um, looking at one group or the other. We are simply keeping it fairly broad and looking at kids with hearing loss and the cards will fall where they lay. Sure. Tim, this has been really interesting and we hope that you'll come back and share the results of, of both stages of your, your research. But for now, good luck. We hope that you your ethics goes through, that uh, the movement goes smoothly and that um, what you're finding um, is, is useful for the field. Yeah, thanks, Trudy. Thanks for the opportunity.